Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For three years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we are looking to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the housing market from leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. You know, people desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The market was frozen solid, and then this spring it was surprisingly strong. Uh, Then this fall it slowed way down again with higher mortgage rates. So if you need to communicate about what's happening in this crazy housing market to your clients, go to altosresearch.com and book a free consult with our team. Uh, We'll review your local markets together and and how you can use market data in your business. All right, let's get to the show. I've got a really interesting guest today. It's a fascinating time in the real estate industry. Uh, We are going to be talking today about the recent lawsuits uh, against the real estate industry for commissions. Uh, they are antitrust lawsuits, and a big one has come in, and the industry lost. Uh, so we're going to talk about the implications of that and the implications of it for not just uh, the the industry, but also for consumers, potential implications for consumers, American home buyers and sellers, uh, as well as implications for the market itself. And my guest today is James Kleiman. James is the managing editor of Housing Wire. He's one of my colleagues. He's been writing extensively on this topic. Uh, and uh, he was actually in the courtroom during much of the landmark Sitz- Sitzer-Burnett trial and is really one of the foremost experts in the country of what's going on here. So I wanted to have this special episode of the Top of Mind podcast to not only review the decision in the case, but also the potential impacts on the housing market. So, James, welcome. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. So let's start, James, with the the substance of the lawsuit and the verdict. So the it just, you know, we've been covering it a ton at Housing Wire, and you've been writing about it, and I know you've done things on stage and talking about it in podcasts, but but the top of mind uh, audience is maybe an Altos audience, so maybe hasn't heard much about what we're talking about yet. So let's start with the basics. What what happened? So yeah, just a very quick breakdown. So in 2019, a lawsuit is filed in the state of Missouri, and they uh, a pretty prominent lawyer in the state has won a lot of big antitrust cases, files a lawsuit naming the National Association of Realtors, Anywhere Real Estate, formerly known as Realogy, and uh, Keller Williams and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services and Remax. What he's essentially arguing on behalf of 500,000 potential uh, class members in the state of Missouri who uh, sold a home between, I believe it's spring of 2015 and fall of 2019, is that if they were selling a home and they used a real estate agent who, because of a National Association of Realtor law rule, rather, 
um, paid a buyer's agent. In effect, they have been injured because they are paying for the services of an adversarial party, and those services should have been paid for by the buyer agent. That the NAR and Keller Williams and Remax and Anywhere and et cetera, et cetera, have all gotten together and have effectively conspired to inflate or stabilize commissions since 1996. And to prove their argument, they look at the actual rates of commissions. They look at communications between real estate executives and other members of their company that are, if not uh, humbly suggesting that agents argue in favor of a 6% split or a 5% split or whatever the number is, um, that they are at least strongly intimating that this is the number that they should get. And of course, as we know, real estate brokerages, their businesses are built on real estate agents closing deals, getting commissions, and then they take, depending on the market, you know, 5, 10%, 15%, 20, 25%, whatever that split ends up being. And that is how they make money. That is how they stay in business. And so, yeah, the, the, the trial in Kansas City, Missouri went on for about two and a half, three weeks. And while I was there, I really fully expected the industry to prevail. I thought that the argument made by the plaintiff that there is a clear cut, very obvious conspiracy here was, um, not very compelling. And in the end, the industry lost and they lost big. It was only a two and a half hour jury deliberation. And when you look at the potential damages, the plaintiffs are going to potentially win $5.6 billion in damages. And this is only on behalf of 500,000 homeowners in this state of Missouri. So it's, it's a really significant case. And as soon as it ended, the same lawyer in the case, Michael Ketchmark, filed another one called the Gibson case. And it could be twice the size of this case. Much bigger. All right. So you said a couple of things in there. There are a couple of threads to pull on here. So one is that um, it was on behalf of the home sellers. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, one of the things that I hadn't followed the, the, the actual ins and outs of the case, but in some ways it didn't surprise me that the industry lost. If you put a bunch of jurors on, if anybody's ever sold a house, they think, well, that was expensive. And what did my agent do? Right. Like, like it doesn't surprise me that, that, um, that people, that, that the a jury would say, Yes, I want to have. I want to spend less money. I, I should have spent less money. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but but uh, it's interesting that you said by sitting in the case and watching the presentation that like it, it didn't feel compelling to you. Tell me about that. Why didn't it feel compelling? So my, I, I slightly disagree with you on, on some of those points. If, if we were to ask even eight people that we work with, Mike, you know, how many of you have sold a home? And did you think that your agent did a really good job and is worth, you know, the 3% or even the 6%? Maybe not all of them would agree, but I think a good chunk of them would be in, 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 in agreement. And if you look at the research, survey after survey, study after study, it's the same problem in American politics. It's not my congressman who's the problem. 
It's every other congressman. Everybody likes their agent, right? Not everybody, but the vast majority of people think that they got good service. What they resent is this idea that they have also paid for other services that maybe shouldn't have been paid for, you know, coming out of their, their wallet. And so I, I think that's part of the rub here. The other issue that I, that I slightly have with those arguments is in the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of these cases, these supposed injured sellers are buying immediately after they sell that home. And then would ergo be benefiting from the same practice that they have supposedly uh, been injured by. And in a lot of cases, they would probably be, I guess, not making money, but but they would be coming out ahead if you were to actually look at the dollars and cents involved in closing costs. So that that is those are the two main reasons that I think um, the jury, again, in my humble journalistic opinion, maybe were swayed by um, you know their own experiences or their own perspectives on how real estate agents and brokerages serve the market and and really what they think it should be, not what it is. That's fascinating. The the uh, example of it's not my agent, it's it's everybody else. It's a it's a phenomenon that I actually write about uh frequently. It's like uh, Derek Thompson at the Atlantic called it I think he, his phrase is like everything sucks except for me. Yeah. Um we do it in the economy, we do it in our schools. So like Oh, the school systems are broken. I love my my schools, great. But we assume, like when we survey about schools, all the schools are broken. And I hadn't realized that about realtors, but it's really fascinating. And it does it makes total sense to me that that broad consumer opinion would would fall that way. And, and also, I think Mike, it's worth noting that I don't know, you know, the agers, I don't know their backstories or anything like that. But there is a decent likelihood that some of them transacted in 2020 or 2021 and and maybe even they sold a home or bought a home and when there is extreme demand when interest rates are near zero i think that's where you started to get into a lot of questions about how hard are some of these agents working for that money is six percent if you sell a home for a million dollars and you pay sixty thousand dollars in commissions and it sells in two days i think that's where some people start looking at it and saying hold on, was that, it's like, what, 500 an hour in some cases or more? You know, like maybe this is a system that needs some variation, right? Even if, you know, the practice itself, your agent is great, you know, they did everything they should have done. Is the system that has been established that you did agree to, that you knowingly agreed to, is it fair based on the amount of work that happens based on the market conditions? Yeah, and you could certainly understand. Uh, I like you understand that that view, um, and it's a common view in Silicon Valley has been for twenty five years about you know for tech people going like, how hard is it to sell a house? I'm going to build a tech company that that eliminates realtors because it's it's not that hard, and I'm going to just do it. You know, and so like that's been a twenty five year uh, you know refrain in real estate technology companies starting with zip realty in the 90s and redfin was started 20 years ago and all of those things along the way and we'll get to redfin i'm sure yeah but, but look like the thing is if you also even look at the silicon valley area and you look at the number of transactions that don't have sell side realtors it's very small we're talking less than 15% so even though the uh, the tech bros eating soylent and, uh, you know, dreaming about a future in which the robots do a lot of that work, they're still hiring agents. They're still paying 
you know, full price on those commissions too. In San Francisco, you're not getting discounts. That's that's exactly right. And it's been my observation over time that that consumer like there are discount options out there, companies like Redfin. And what's what I've observed over the years in this industry is that all of those discounters they go out to market with a discount strategy, and what they rapidly find is that their customers are demanding full service, full price offerings, and they have to offer. Like so, as soon as they launch, as soon as Redfin launches, the next thing they do is launch a full price service because that's what their customers want. And it's been fascinating to me, uh, and it's I think probably goes back to that everything sucks except for me model, which is like, you know. Oh yeah, there should be discounters, but actually, I need to. I, like, I want to have full. I want to have a full service offering. Okay, so that's uh, that's where we are. So the lawsuits happened. They they lost big, and it was a one point eight billion. But damages are treble, so it is five and a half billion. Five point six billion, and that's just Missouri, and it's just one lawsuit in Missouri. And now there's all kinds of follow-ons. The the same guy did another one. Uh, there's follow-ons in, in other states. There's other parts of the industry being uh, sued. So um, these were like mostly brokers and NAR, the national organization. Um, were the MLSs uh, involved in this one? Not in the Sitzer Burnett case. The MLSs have only recently been started to get named in what we call the copycat lawsuits, which are effectively arguing most of the same uh, you know, tenants of the, the prior lawsuits that have been, if not successful, at least further along in the court system. And I think what we're starting to find now is you always start where you think as an antitrust lawyer, you can prove that there is a conspiracy among, um, you know, entities that are big enough to actually enforce it, right? And And there needs to be clear cut damages. And that's how you win. And most likely this 5.6 number that we're talking about is probably going to get settled to something way below that. And in some cases, like we're talking almost like pretend money, there's not a single brokerage or the NAR, if you put them all together, that would even be able to fight, you know, some of the judgments that are, we're talking like bigger than tobacco, <laughs> you know, rulings in, in um, you know, in, in prior antitrust cases. Um, but But getting back to the question, Mike, so what we're starting to see now is all of the other players that were not named to the first lawsuit, the first two lawsuits. So we're now seeing different brokerages that are getting named to the other lawsuits. Uh, we're now seeing brokers, managing brokers that are getting named to lawsuits. We're seeing local MLS associations that are getting named to these lawsuits because the central premise of the winning argument in Sitzer Burnett is that there is a horizontal conspiracy that all of these various entities have conspired uh, through various means um, to, in effect, inflate commissions. And so you can't have that conspiracy unless you have, you know, the buy-in of the managing broker, of the MLS, of the NAR. So all of these parties will be named at some point in time. I think the vast majority of brokerages in America will be named to one of these lawsuits at some point in time. Um, you know, the, the way a copycat lawsuit works is you don't want it to get rolled into another. You don't want it to get automatically dismissed because generally speaking, uh, the judicial system in America frowns upon copycat cases, uh, but they do have to 
Um, they do have to at least entertain if there are different claims, if there are different defendants, if there are different merits to some of those claims, right? So if you're naming different brokerages, if you're naming different types of real estate personnel in, individually, not even, you know, just going after the NAR, then you have a better chance of that case standing. And then you have a better case, you know, in, in terms of making it through the court system. And then, of course, you have a better likelihood of getting some kind of a settlement. And when we look at this, it's all about the settlements, right? I mean, some of the lawyers who are suing now in some of these copycat lawsuits are literal ambulance chasers. We're talking about personal injury lawyers who have never litigated an antitrust case, who probably haven't litigated a real estate case. Um, and now they're suddenly going after some some random broker in South Carolina. You know, like, it, it's pretty clear to me that they're looking for a quick buck and a quick settlement and look like that's their prerogative. This is our legal system. They can absolutely do that. Um, but I, I think what it does mean is it opens the door to a lot of other litigation and eventually pretty much everyone's going to be named um, until there's, you know, a precedent or larger scope decision that has been created. Okay. So those are some some legal implications that we've been talking about. Who? Let's talk about the market implications. And a couple of questions in there is, like Remax settled early before this decision came out, right? Are they protected now? So theoretically, Remax and Anywhere are protected. Uh, they've already changed their practices and policies as a result of the settlements that they made with Michael Ketchmark that also apply to another case out of Illinois called the Morrill case that should be kicking off sometime in 2024. They may not be protected, though, and here's a really simple reason why. The Department of Justice has been highly interested in these cases, and they have already kind of gotten in on a different related commission case out of Boston called the No Select case, and they've already kind of put their thumb on the scale and said, hey, uh, we, we don't like this settlement. And the judge said, okay, like, let's, let's hang on. Like, let's, let's have, you know, the DOJ basically get in the middle of this. And they are very likely to do the same in the Sitzer Burnett case if they don't feel that it properly addresses uh, some of the, the issues that, you know, the DOJ believes should be addressed. Namely, you know, a change to some of the NAR practices, I think. Uh, so, you know, the whole case really hinges on what's called the NAR participation, the clear cooperation rule. And that rule is the foundational element for the MLSs to exist. And that rule basically says, look, if you're an agent, you are a realtor and you have any kind of marketing on any sort of listing, you need to list it in the MLS in 24 hours. And you also need to be making an offer of compensation to the buyer agent. And that's what is at the heart of every single one of these cases the DOJ absolutely is interested in changing some of those policies. Maybe it'll be as simple as, you know, there's a, you can put a zero in, you know, in, in the line instead of it being a dollar or a cent or whatever. Uh, but the DOJ is absolutely looking to affect policy change. And the best way to do it, probably from their perspective, is to, um, you know, fight it through the Sitzer Burnett case. Through the same case. That's fascinating. I didn't realize the DOJ was getting involved there. Uh, that seems scarier. Everybody, the thing is like right now we're in kind of a holding pattern. So we are waiting for the judge in the Sitzer Burnett case to issue what is called injunctive relief, 
So he's going to determine what are the damages, should they be upheld and trebled, very likely to be the case. But he is also going to determine what happens to this rule because the jury found that there was, that they have used this NAR rule as a vehicle to commit this conspiracy to injure all of these home sellers. And so that rule can't be good law, right? That rule has to change. So the judge has great, he, he could do any number of things to this rule. He could completely change it and say the compensation that we know it today where a buyer broker is compensated by a seller broker and then, you know, both agents get paid, that could be totally gone. And in every case, a buyer needs to come up with their own compensation for their own agent or brokerage. Um, or he could say, we're going to change the rule so that you can put a zero. And the practice of a seller's broker compensating a buyer's broker will remain. Um, or, you know, there could be, they could cut the baby in too, right? I mean, there are a lot of different ways it could be done. And, and that's really what's holding everything up because we don't know what, practically speaking, will actually change. Got it. Uh, which is, I think, I guess the big, that's the, the big overhanging question for the industry is, do we suddenly lose half the commission revenue, the, the agents lose half the commission revenue that they've been uh, getting? Is, does that, I mean, does that seem like in the universe of possibility to you that, that suddenly, you know, we, we move into a world like the UK where there's no buyer's agents? I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, I do think that in some transactions where buyers are already hard up for cash and don't have, um, you know, the leverage or they don't have the ability, you can't finance this sort of thing in a mortgage, right? So I, I think in some cases they would say, look, I'm an FHA buyer. I'm only putting 3% down. Like you think I'm going to be paying for an agent out of pocket if the practice of, um, you know, compensating the buyer agent goes away. Probably not, right? In some cases, you're, you're going to see, I would, I would say like maximum 10 to 15% of cases, there just wouldn't be a buyer agent. Maybe there would be dual agency, depending on the state. Maybe there would be, you know, some sort of tech operation that comes in. Maybe real estate lawyers fill that void and say, hey, like all you need is, you know, some paperwork help and uh, we can provide that for a flat fee, right? Like there are all kinds of different forms that, that could take the place of. Um, but I think the vast majority of people are still going to use a buyer agent, especially when you get to middle-class, upper-middle-class, upper-class buyers, because they are so comfortable. They don't do a lot of these transactions unless they're investors. And at the end of the day, I think you will still find there's a compelling argument that a seller will end up paying for that buyer agent themselves. So, yeah, I mean, definitely in some transactions, I think you just won't see a buyer rep. But I think in the vast majority of cases, you're going to see that the practice of clear cooperation and, you know, the, the standard commission model that has existed for more than 100 years, which vastly predates any of these NAR rules and policies and et cetera, et cetera. I think the vast majority of home sellers and home buyers will still look at it and say, you know what, we're putting it on the MLS, we have an agent, we're going to go through another professional representative, and it's going to be a smoother, cleaner process, and the seller agent will 
just factor that into the price, which we're going to get on mortgage on anyway, right? That's fascinating. Okay, so this is really where we want to get to the meat of this conversation, is what happens in the market. And I, I've speculated that, you know, like one possibility, you're, by the way, much more sanguine about what might, the options of what might happen that I, that I have been, uh, you know, the, the uh, but, but I've speculated that, that, you know, I could imagine a world where suddenly that cost of the buyer's agent gets shifted to the buyer and it adds cost to our buyers um, maybe in the thousands of dollars, even if it's like bit paid hourly work or whatever, uh, that, that could then make it uh, add to our affordability challenge in this country. That's one potential option. I, as you're talking, though, I have another, another thought, and it, I could imagine, because now it's, a, it's, a, it's like specified by the seller, we, we are... We list the house, and yes, we're going to pay the buyer's agent. And I could imagine a world where, if I'm selling, and I know that it's a, you know, it's a high demand market, and maybe it's like a high demand market, and it's uh, investor buyers, especially the the big institutional investor buyers. I might say, I'm not paying a buyer commission on it, and therefore we're in that world where it actually shifts power to the the bigger players the big institutional money because they're the ones who can go in with their own representation or they have their own process that that is not uh that that actually uh so like is i could imagine a scenario that shifts power out of the hands of the individual and inst- institutional buyers have you a do you does that sound at all reasonable and b uh, like do you, you have other scenarios i, I think that's possible in some in some situations, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, certainly if you're an institutional investor, you are not going to be, you know, incentivized to be bringing your own buyer agent to the table, right? Like there's no reason. And in fact, you, in a lot of cases, probably don't even want the seller to be using an agent, right? Because you're also just creating an extra 3% on top of what you'll end up paying. So maybe you approach home sellers directly. You know, we also see in some in some markets, I, I think it's a pretty small market right now, but Open Door has its own listings platform where basically they, they do both, right? And there's no agent on either side of it. If somebody wants to use an agent that'll come out of their pocket um, and they can do it, but they want to make a very fluid, easy transaction. I mean, there are other problems with the scalability of, of you know, a business like Open Door, um, but certainly I would consider them kind of a quasi-institutional buyer, right? And, and if anybody could do something like this, yeah, I mean, a company like Open Door doesn't need the resources of an agent. And they do honestly make a lot of the process much smoother. They remove a lot of the friction from the home buying and home selling process. So, yeah, I, I think there is an opportunity. I mean, you, you still get into a lot of the same problems, though, where the average consumer, one, the average person just doesn't like a lot of very rapid change. You know, and they don't do that many transactions over the lifespan, you know, of, of selling, buying a home. I think there are just a lot of people who would still be too comfortable working with an agent, working under the system that they're familiar with, that their parents were familiar with, that their parents' parents were familiar with. Maybe this changes in future generations. I don't know any boomers unless they're like real estate pros 
who would, you know, clear-eyed walk into an arrangement like this and say, yep, totally comfortable with some faceless, you know, real estate institutional investor slash portal uh, slash iBuyer that is going to be handling all this and I have no representation. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. It's, it's much more optimistic than I've been about the, the potential implications there. You talk to too many tech bros, man. I think that's the issue. Yeah, yeah it could be. That's, uh, that's definitely between my San Francisco bubble and my Twitter feed. Man, it's, uh, it's, it's Armageddon out there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the, the companies, that, the brokers and the tech companies and things. Um, it was really fascinating to me that in the last couple of weeks, since the announcement of the verdict, which was like first couple of days in November, uh, that like stock prices of those companies tanked, but then they're all back up big. They're, it's like they're much more sensitive to falling interest rates than they are to this decision, even though this decision seems massive. Like, and the the potential financial risk to those brokers seems like no brokers got billions to pay. Uh, you know, the brokers don't have any money at all. <laughs> like, there could be companies that go out of business. And so, so tell me what we should know about that. So, I mean, if you look at the bureau economics of real estate brokerage, these are very small margin businesses. Even in the best of times, these are not great businesses. This is why you never see the real estate stocks of the the Compass or the Anywhere or the Remax or whatever. They're never big, splashy stocks, right? Because these are low margin businesses. They're getting a cut of a cut from an agent. And those agents are 1099 operators who can peace out tomorrow. And then your whole business goes up in smoke, right? Like that's that's the reality of these companies. And so... Yeah, when when you talk about them not having money, like you're absolutely right, Mike. They don't they don't have a lot of protection. And the the irony of all of these lawsuits is they didn't even truly go after the money. The money is in the individual agents. The individual agents are collecting 80 85% of all of these commissions, right? It's just you can't name like every single individual agent to a lawsuit, you know, in, in a class action. Um, so that the real threat for some of the brokerages is bigger than others. So I think there is potentially an opportunity for some of the discount brokers to gain a little bit of traction. The reality is discount brokerages have existed for decades now. They have never been the creme de la creme. The average person is still governed by this fear. And I'll give you a perfect example. I bought a house in Pennsylvania, kind of like a weekend cottagey kind of place. My wife ended up hating it because we're city slickers from New York. And she's like, there's not a single restaurant. There's like way too much, you know, opioid addiction issues out here. Like there's way too much, not, not my scene. I don't want to be here. We're going to sell. And I'm like, honey, like we have a 2.6% mortgage. Like we can Airbnb it. Like just like chill out. And she's like, no, we're selling it. I'm never going back. We're getting rid of it. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I do what a lot of people do, and I think, you know what? I know a lot about real estate. I do this for a living. Maybe I can just get one of those flat fee brokers based out of Florida. They get your listing on the MLS for like 500 bucks. You write your own description. You end up taking your own photos or you hire somebody. You know, you do all the work. You take all the calls. You end up doing all the paperwork. Maybe you hire a real estate lawyer, but instead of paying 6%, 
maybe you only pay like two grand, right? And that could be a savings of like $20,000, $30,000, right? So I have this thought and keep in mind, you know, I, I do this for a living. Like I'm pretty comfortable with real estate and contracts and dense reading. In the end, I end up going with a Keller Williams agent who charged a full 6%. And the reason why is because my wife and I decided, you know what? We're not going to do this very often. I'd rather go with a professional who does this day in and day out than bet on myself. And so I still think that the average professional agent who does a couple million a year in volume is going to be absolutely fine. In fact, they're probably going to be in, end up better off if these verdicts end up. And here's the reason. This is going to kill the Aunt Bettys of the world who do a deal a year, a deal every couple years, who you know represent their nephew on the buy side when he's buying a home. Um, but they're not professional day-to-day -day agents. These are part-timers who often are not up on the latest market trends, who are not very technologically savvy, who can't serve a buyer as well. If, if we hired a part-timer to do your job, Mike, how well do you think they do it? Probably not very well. If you hired a part-timer who was just like a freelance writer who didn't really know real estate or mortgage to do my job, they would, they would not, they wouldn't last a week. Right. And I'm not saying that the divide for all real estate agents is that great. Um, but a lot of them are very specialized. They know their markets. They know how to do this work. Do they deserve a full 6%? Maybe not, you know, maybe not in every case, but I still think the average person is going to take that over doing a FISBO with some flat fee brokerage based out of Florida. But I do think a lot of those marginal agents, the, the agents who don't do a lot of business, who aren't real pros, who are just not great, they're going to wash out because a lot of buyers will just say, you know what? There's no reason to work with them. They don't provide enough value. And those are the ones who will wash out. And so it's going to be the big who get bigger. It's going to be consolidation at the top. But don't you think that uh, that that of that six percent half that goes to the buyer's agent? Don't you think that that in general that buyer's agent cut is at risk here? Like most of the buyer's agents are going to be feeling that pressure. Yeah, I mean maybe it ends up being that the sell side agents end up getting three percent, and the sellers who you know in, in cooperative compensation right now. So, so the way it works is like, let's say, Mike, you're going to sell my home and we have a discussion early on in the process and you're the agent. You say, look, we're going to do 6%. I'm going to take 3% and I'm also going to compensate the buy side 3% because that will guarantee that they're going to bring qualified buyers, serious buyers to the table. They're not going to waste your time. We're not going to go through a bunch of bullshit. We're going to get this done. And I think that's worthwhile. Maybe... You know, I now read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I read Housing Wire. And I check in on this case and I think, man, we're paying buy side agents 3%? Get at it. That's ridiculous. And maybe I'm going to say, you know what? Fine. You know, Mike, you can have the 3%. I'm not paying another 3% to those people. It's not going to happen. And so that is one way that you could see buy side commissions drop. You could also see some people. Maybe working with a Redfin, which is going to take, what, a 1.5% you know, commission, plus they have their own salary. But then you still run into the same problem, which is how do you incentivize the buy side?
it takes time for these things to change. Not every agent in America, not every seller in America on day one is going to say, I'm going to do the radical thing and I'm going to offer a dollar in buy side comp, right? It's going to be gradual. I don't think we'll see major changes for years. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. This could, most real estate brokerages are doing about 50-50 on, on these deals. So if that ends up being 75 list and 25 buy, uh, you know, that's that's really bad for their economics. And you could definitely see more consolidation within the brokerage landscape as well. And we've already seen that. You know, we've seen a lot of the smaller uh, agencies and brokerages saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to hang my license now with uh, with a Keller Williams or with an EXP or with a Compass. Like, I'm just, I can't, I can't hang and deal with all of these huge risks, all these dark storm clouds that are overhead. I'm in a much better position as the managing brokerage, uh, a managing broker of a smaller imprint within, say, Compass. So I think we'll see a lot more consolidation in the brokers. I could see that as well. Like, like we, we have some, especially if Remax or anywhere get away, like they, they, if they've settled and that somehow protects them from furthers, all of a sudden any agents working for them are protected. I could imagine that'd be a really a, a fascinating trend. That would be a huge boon for Remax and anywhere because you also have to think that they probably got in on favorable terms because, you know, the verdict was still anyone's guess when they settled and anywhere settled for 84 million, Remax settled for 55 million. You think Michael Ketchmark, the plaintiff's attorney, is going to let the others, you know, settle for for that much or, or less? You know, knowing that he's already got uh, a victory, I, I think that's unlikely. I think it's unlikely. Okay, there's a couple of more impl- implications to think about. I was talking with so uh, Andy uh, is uh, is the Altos CTO, and he's um, he's British. He was in the U.S. for a long time, but they moved back to the U.K. to uh, take care of their in-laws, and they're buying a house. They have a, they have a new baby. They're buying a house. Um, he pointed out today that they and there's no buy side agents in the UK so you don't pay the buy side agent commission right like that, like that's how many countries get away don't don't have this problem because on the buy side you're just not represented and so he's buying a house that's got some kind of like wobbly wall and he has nobody to go to bat for him and he's like what do I do do I buy the house do I not buy the house he he has he's like stuck right now yeah, so he needs to hire a structural engineer. He needs to do all that work himself. And, and you know, that's one of the challenges that we, we have. Because of the MLSs, we have this incredibly efficient um, system that I, I think does promote. Um, you want to have representation if you can. The question is, who pays for it and how much are they willing to pay, right? The British system, the Australian system, they're so different from... America, you know, one of the fascinating parts about the case, Mike, is that Michael Ketchmark, the attorney for the plaintiffs, is trying to argue, hey, you know, if if what I have argued ends up coming to pass, we're going to be more like Australia. But Australia is so different. They have more of an auction system. They don't have an MLS like we do. A lot of the functions that real estate agents serve today in America it's done by accountants, it's done by real estate lawyers, it's done by other parties that are not necessarily real estate specific. And so the buyer also doesn't have the same, I don't know if I'd say like backup. They, they don't have the same level of representation in, in a transaction unless they hire it out. 
and they can't do that. Most people don't have that kind of money, especially with interest rates probably going to remain elevated for a couple of years. So yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, the, the most comparable system to the one that we have is Canada. You know, it's, it's basically governed by the, you know, the version of the NAR in Canada. They have local MLSs. They have agents on both sides with, uh, you know, cooperative compensation. Those commissions are more similar to what we have. There's also South Africa. That's another country that has slightly lower commissions, but a more similar system to the U.S. You know, there are a lot of countries in the world that have lower commission rates, but you don't, as a buyer, get the same protections. You don't get the same level of services. You might not get any services. So yeah, you're only paying one or 2% because you can get shit for it, right? The question is, should it be 6%, right? And like, there's a big, like, I think there's a lot of room for nuance on that side. Like on the buy side, maybe it should be an hourly rate for an agent. Maybe they're paid like a lawyer, right? Maybe they're paid like, um, you know, an account accounting firm. Maybe they're paid like, you should pay them like professionals if you're getting professional representation, but you're basically tying it to the cost of the house, not the cost of the labor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can understand how that, that, you know, frustrates people. I think one of the Australian comparisons really telling, like the U.S., in many ways, has it the envy of the world. The system in the U.S. is the envy of the world. In in Australia, like the listings are all owned by one company. Like online, you go to one company online. You it's a monopoly market. Like it's even in my mind, it's even worse. Or if you go to France, you still gotta like know the guy who's got the listings, right? Because his dad was the broker back then, and his dad had the listings, and now he's got the listings. Like so, you know, in many parts of the world, it's uh, it's a dramatically more frustrating uh, process to buy a home. And and one of the things that it, it, the things that I've been arguing is that so many of the the consumers, the tech bros, you know, especially are like, you're like, oh, I can, I did all the work. I found the home. I even filled out the forms and they have no idea that the, that, that, that exists online and those forms exist online because the realtors, we've, we've paid the realtors to create this really excellent environment, the really open, transparent, efficient environment with the MLSs and standardized forms and things like that, where, where we are literally like one potential angle is that we're suing those systems out of business. Do you think, am, am I freaking out too much? Maybe a little bit. Yeah. I, I still think that the practice of cooperative compensation and the MLSs is, is a good value to the American consumer. We have democratized real estate transactions in America with this system, with this practice. And, and it predates these NAR laws, these rules, by the way, and so I still think that there are going to be enough people who say, you know what, it's just smart to have well-informed representatives on both sides of the transaction and consumers who have consumer protections. Is it worth 6%? You know, I, I think that's probably different, but um, certainly it's a better system and you want to have MLSs. Are we going to have 500-something realtor-owned MLSs in the future? I think it's highly unlikely. I think a lot of the MLSs, which really are the ones who enforce all of these rules that are now in question legally, I think that's going to be the next you know, major battle 
when we talk about the landscape of commissions and how agents transact and and really where the consumer comes into play, the, one of the great fears that a lot of agents have, one, they're already super pissed and have been for many years that the NAR effectively sells their data to Zillow and to, you know, Realtor and CoStar, et cetera, et cetera, and that they never took advantage of the Realtor.com name when they sold it to Move.in, right? Like, they're, they're still very frustrated and feel like the NAR really let them down. And we, we just did a big survey a couple of days ago asking 300-ish, you know, agents and brokers, hey, what do you think about the NAR? Would you be members if it didn't give you MLS access? 75% of people said no. We wouldn't even bother. So there's a lot of antipathy to the NAR. I think the NAR could very well likely end up just being a super PAC and that strong lobbying voice is needed. But if it's also the de facto policy creator and a huge target of litigation for everything the agents do, like that's also a problem, which also means that you then have the MLSs that are potentially under threat because the MLSs have to follow the NAR rules. They're all realtor-owned, with the exception of the independents. So maybe that could, in, in you know, the big fear of the everyday agent, that could be disrupted. And maybe the, the MLSs go away, and you have a national MLS that is run by Zillow or CoStar or whomever. Then you get into a real question of like, okay, well, am I as the agent putting in all of my data you know, directly into the feed of Zillow or CoStar? And then are they going to be charging me when I, you know, put my own listing up? Like, you're damn right, they're probably going to charge you, right? Like, this isn't a charity. So I think that is a fear. I think there's a fear that large tech companies could just end up taking over some of the MLSs instead. Um, you know, right now that can't happen because they have to be realtor-owned. You know, the, the NAR still does have a big moat around the MLSs, which are the real value here, Right. Because there's no, there's no system in America without the MLSs. That is the linchpin of all of this. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens to the MLSs as they start getting named to these lawsuits. And they will. You know, we only just saw the first lawsuit come in. They're going to be named in probably 100 more next year. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a big, big topic. Okay. So we're getting close to the time here. But let me ask you one last question, which is, um, if we think about implications like the MLSs or like in a world where Zillow, we've shut everybody else down and you got to go to Zillow to buy your house uh, or CoStar, um, what time frame are we looking at? Is there, is that a 2024, like, is it, is, is like, do the things get shut down fast? Do they get shut? Like, is that a 10 year horizon? What time frame are we talking here? Yeah, we're, we're talking like, I mean, for that possible scenario, which is like an Armageddon really for a lot of people in the industry. I mean, that I would think that would be like a decade away, if not more. The NAR, even though they're in a really tough financial position, having lost this Sitzer Burnett case and, and they have to come up with a bond to appeal and the brokerages don't have a lot of money, like they still have enough fight. There are still enough agents. There's still enough, I think, um, influence from the traditional real estate industry that they would be able to push back on a lot of this and like, look what's happened in New York. So in, in my hometown in New York, the NAR is not a factor at all. The local organization that maintains 
You know, the MLS is called Rebney. It's the Real Estate Board of New York. It is a very powerful trade group. It is kind of commercial focused. I think that's the criticism. But they also have an MLS. They call it the RLS because they have to be different in New York, right? And the thing is, nobody uses it. Now, it's used in the sense that, yes, the agents, the brokers, the managing brokers, they're putting in the listings into the RLS and that RLS is getting fed into other portals. But the consumer probably has never heard of Rebney, has probably never heard of the RLS. None of the agents, not none, but very few of them have anything to do with the NER. Everything goes through StreetEasy, which is owned by Zillow. And StreetEasy has been pecking at the agents. They've been charging them, you know, $8, $10 a day for any rental listing they have. They've been charging brokerages a huge sum of money for their own data. That is a scenario that I think the industry is very wary of. And like you ask the average agent what they think about Zillow, and they'll probably say, I fucking hate Zillow. <laughs> they'll probably say that. But you know what? A lot of them still use it because that's where all the eyeballs are. That's where the consumer power is. And so I, I think that it could, you could see Zillow, they even acknowledged it on their own earnings call a, about a week or two ago that they would be very well positioned if they wanted to get in on this action, to capitalize on this disruption. They are wisely saying, we're not, we're not doing it. We're not, you know, we still believe in the current model uh, because it would be stupid not to, frankly. So even if they are thinking about it, they're definitely not going to tell you. But I mean, at least a decade away, there's still way too much fight left in the industry. Easy only ended up getting to charge those insane rental fees to the brokers, to the agents, after many years of kind of moving the ball slowly, you know, into the opposition half. And um, I don't think anybody wants to see Zillow take over an MLS. Great. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, James. You're the managing editor of Housing Wire. Is there, uh, other than going to Housing Wire, for people to read up further on this, is there something specific or just send them to housingwire.com? Yeah, yeah. Just check out housingwire.com. We've written probably, God, don't quote me on this, but probably about 120, 130 stories about these commission lawsuits. We've covered every angle from how mortgage loan officers would be affected, how FHA, VA buyers would be affected. We've covered how the title industry is reacting to this, how the MLSs are thinking about new ways to protect themselves in the wake of the Sitzer Burnett trial. We've talked to probably hundreds of agents and brokers we're covering it from every single angle. And I'd love to hear from you as well if you have some thoughts on this. I, I get all kinds of uh, interesting emails. Some are unhinged, if we're frank. Uh, so my, my email is, is james at hwmedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, ho hopefully you guys check out our coverage. J james, thank you so much. Really informative. I appreciate your insights and, and your expertise on the topic. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app that helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.